Leviticus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day of the, uh, the, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Let's get down to chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. Skip down to verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Skip down to chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot and on the top of the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hands he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be clean. Now skip over to chapter 15, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or whether his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with a discharge lies shall be unclean. And everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. This is, believe it or not, God's Word. Um, hey, look, if the, if the book of Leviticus has not yet offended you, you've come to the right night. 
you know, there are few things, if you'll think about it, the things which offend us the most are the things about which we are the most sensitive. And I really think that there are few sensitivities that offend this campus the most, or at least that can rate quite as high with our struggle with either being in or out. Um, I don't think there's anything that defines Ole Miss more than the struggle to know that I'm acceptable or that I'm unacceptable. C.S. Lewis, in a lecture that he gave to a a boy's school at their graduation, uh, suggests that this tendency is universal in a little essay that he did called The Inner Ring. He says, my purpose in this address is to simply convince you that this desire to be in is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It is one of the factors which go to make up the world as which we know it. This whole pell-mell of struggle, competition, confusion, graft, disappointment, and advertisement. And if it is one of the permanent mainsprings, then you may be quite sure of this. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life from the first day on which you enter your profession until the day in which you are too old to care. In other words, Lewis is saying that there is nothing more um, present in your life than that desire to be in In other words, this struggle I don't think is going away. For many of us, the one thing that keeps us, honestly, from a complete sort of nervous breakdown from being here at Ole Miss is at least the slight comfort that when it comes to being in or out, we kind of can judge on a curve while we're here. You know, there's categories to being in or out while you're here. But I think this is why the passages that we just read are so offensive to our ears. Mostly because the hammer comes down so definitively. You are either clean or unclean. Ain't but two categories when you come to this God. In other words, the clean get one thing. The unclean are cast into the outer darkness, for goodness sakes. And what makes it even worse is that it's God who's doing the casting out which completely is beyond any sort of modern conception of God, who is supposed to be all about acceptance, right? Right? Look, what in the world are we going to do to try to make sense of these clean laws? Well, I want to do this week what we tried to do last week with the food laws, and that is to ask three questions. First of all, what were the clean laws? Second of all, what did they mean? And third of all, can we discover the God who makes us clean? What were the laws? What do they mean? And what about this God who makes us clean? First of all, what were these clean laws? Well, look, in order to understand this, you've got to, I've got to remind you what I told you last week about being unclean. Um, you have to understand that everyone in Israel, and perhaps by the short description that we gave, you might be convinced of this. Every Jewish person at some point during their lifetime, uh, obviously multiple points in their lifetime, was unclean. It was absolutely inevitable. But the labels of clean and unclean typically make us think about moral purity, but that's not what's being suggested here. In other words, being unclean was not somehow some moral evaluation of you. What it was, was a statement of your status. 
That is, it was a statement about where you stood with the Jewish ritual of, well, being Jewish. Of living within that particular ritual. In other words, it dealt with how a person, or actually even an inanimate object for that matter, was viewed. Or how they were treated, if you will, when they were in a certain condition. Does that make sense? When people were declared to be unclean, it doesn't mean that they had acted wickedly or unrighteously in any way. But rather that something was abnormal. You were unclean when something was out of place. When something was imperfect. In other words, the usual standards of being sort of uh, of normal hygiene, if you will, were somehow being breached. Hence, you were unclean. Okay. With that in mind, let's look at the things that we had listed. In chapter 12, you get a little sampling of how women were unclean after childbirth. (laughs) Like I said, if you haven't been offended yet, this is where we're going to start, okay? What in the world could possibly make someone unclean about giving birth to a child? (laughs) Offensiveness number one is the mere thought of saying, wait a minute, having a child is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Why declare the poor woman unclean in the process? Uh, The second thing is that's even more offensive, (laughs) and I read this purposefully, is that a woman is actually unclean for a week extra if she happens to give birth to a girl. Okay? Come on, ladies. Let that feminism kind of boil up inside you, right? What are you talking about here, Bible? What's the deal? All right, well, bear with me for a second because I think that's a perfect illustration to demonstrate something profound about the book of Leviticus that we'll actually also deal with in weeks to come. And that is simply this. It's hinted at there in verse 7. When a woman has a baby, in the same way that she is when she is on her period, bear with me, she bleeds. And because of that, we have a theme that comes out in the book of Leviticus that is huge. And that has to do with blood. Look, y'all, please try to get this into your mind. When an ancient Near Eastern person understood, for that matter, the whole Bible thought about blood, it imagined the blood being, in many ways, almost equated with life itself. Your life, the essence of your life, was wrapped up in your blood. And so God basically said that whenever blood leaves your body, it's not something that I want to make you think is a normal thing. And for that reason, I'm going, to, I'm going to create a category for it. You're unclean whenever that happens. Not that you're unrighteous, not that you're morally reprehensible, but that I'm distinguishing you at that moment. Why? Because life has left your body, right? It hints at the fact that God looks and says, I will not be party to anything that has to do or even hints at life leaving the body of a human being. That's what he's saying. It's a profound statement that God is making. And the reason why now we understand that a woman is going to be unclean for two weeks if she, ha- if she has a girl is that most scholars believe that she is experiencing a week of uncleanness for her own blood, but also the potential blood that rests when the female child will either give birth, birth or menstruate. That's the reason why. Because God is saying, I want it to be an object lesson for you about the importance of the blood. We're coming to talk about the, the, the Day of Atonement, I think next week, or at least in the next couple of weeks. And that's going to come back. Remember that thought. 
Okay, then we get to chapter 13, and the fun just keeps on going. Because then we're going to talk about skin diseases that have white hairs growing out of them. Okay? Um, You know, a lot of people think that these ancient priests were acting like doctors. That's not the purpose of these passages, most scholars think. Rather, they were more like what we would consider to be a health inspector. In other words, they were simply trying to understand whether or not what you were struggling with was of a certain quality. By the way, when it uses the word leprosy, we don't think that we're talking simply about um, uh, uh, Hansen's disease, what we know as leprosy in our day. But we know that it meant really any kind of skin disease that was common during that ancient Near Eastern society. But here's the deal. If you end up having one of these particular kind of skin diseases, you were sequestered. Set outside the camp. That's what happened. And that's simply the way God did it. One of the main reasons why God did it is to basically make certain that the disease wouldn't spread if it was infectious. But here's the thing. I thought that when I first started reading through this and studying this, and some of the commentators I read noticed this too. You got to realize, though, that there's a little more than just sequestering that's going on in these passages. To be honest, if you have to scream unclean, When somebody's walking past you, it feels, I'll be honest with you, almost downright psychologically abusive, doesn't it? To make somebody say that? Okay, hold that thought. That's chapter 13. A fun, you know, late afternoon reading if you get some time this week. Chapter 14 describes this giant celebration that goes on when your unclean skin disease was actually healed. Great big party. Again, more on that in just a second. Chapter 15 actually did something uh, even weirder that basically talked about bodily emissions that would make you unclean. Not only was a woman unclean during her period, but also a man was unclean every time he ejaculated after sex, right? Really, any time fluids left your body, you were deemed to be unclean. Why? Well, very simply, because in some way, even if in a figurative sense, life had left your body. It had gone out. And the point of this is, is the subtext through all these chapters is simply saying that every single one of you, no matter how you might try, is going to be unclean at one point during your lifetime. End of story. It's going to happen. Now, look, you're not crazy if you're not thinking to yourself, there is no way this has anything to do with anything at all in my life. Well, let's go to point two then to try to figure out what in the world these things mean. Look, in my opinion, I feel like I've heard way too many times as people wrestle with these passages, the kind of classic Christian out for these things, which is to say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament God. Thank goodness we're New Testament Christians. We don't believe that stuff anymore. But to be honest with you, that's a little too simplistic. Um, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. We've got to stay committed to being, as I said last week, whole Bible Christians. We've got to stay there, y'all. Look, clearly there was a message in these laws. But the question is, what was it? Well, I want to give it to you in one short sentence. The clean laws throughout these chapters, and we only got a sampling of them here, is preaching a message. They were given by God in order to give these people, bear with me for a second, a living parable about all the ways in which sin has messed up the world. Let me say that again. What this stuff said and screamed to people was a living parable of the ways in which sin has messed up the world. 
In other words, these things tell us about three things. It tells us about God, it tells us about ourselves, and it tells us about the world. First of all, what do we learn about God from these things? Well, from what we were talking about before, we see that God is saying in numerous places, if you're going to understand anything about a relationship to me, you have to see that I am holy. And whatever your conception about what you think I am about, if it doesn't start with a trembling at my majesty, then you've missed it. Or even worse, it's not me. It's something other than the real me. God looks and says, I need to tell you in vivid ways, ways which to our modern sensibilities are quite disgusting, that I'm a God who who will not be around anything that even hints at decay. So much so that when a fluid or blood even leaves your body, I need you to understand that that says something about me and about the fact that all life is in me. But secondly, it says something about us, does it not? Because it looks and says basically that sin does to your soul what dirt and disease and decay will do to your body. You see, it's a parable that's being told about us. In other words, the skin diseases were trying to say that there's something that defiles your soul as well. Sin will alienate your soul. It'll isolate your soul. If you think about being around dirty people, right? Dirty people are repulsive. We, don't, we can't get next to them. In order to get close to them, there has to be a washing. Every culture has some form of that. I would even go so far as to argue that, that in this parable is being preached a message about what sin will do to your insides. Sin has the ability and the tendency to come in and eat away at what's inside of you. You remember when you were a kid, you used to have blue jeans uh, that had the holes in the knees. You remember those? Why, was the holes always, why did the holes always come in the knees, right? Because that's where all the dirt collected. And what? Dirt ends up deteriorating clothes and makes them wear out faster. Look, infection does to your body what sin is doing to your soul, God is saying. And I need you to see this. Sin discolors and disfigures the image of God imprinted upon his people. Cancer will destroy your body. But sin is a cancer of the soul, God is saying. And I need you to see that. So we learn something about God. We learn something about ourselves. But we learn something about our world as well. See, God is looking and saying... Please understand something that your sin is not just wrapped up in your individual acts. How else do you explain that the bed upon which someone had an emission is unclean after they get up from it? How can an inanimate object be unclean? Unless God is looking and saying that sin is more than just your individual acts. Look, y'all, you've got to be able to, to get this. God is saying that the problem with sin as it has gone out throughout the world is pervasive. It's systemic. It goes beyond just like the little individual things that you struggle with inside your heart. And it, it, but it's moved in systems. It's moved in neighborhoods. It's moved in people groups. Even to the point where the Bible in some places will say that the very creation is groaning because of our sin. There's some way in which the, even the created order is groaning from our sin. Again, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but it fascinates me to say that sin has done that. God is looking and saying and placarding with these laws that I need you not just to look at the micro effects of your sin, but the macro effects. 
Look, y'all, in other words, the clean laws were this. Here's my summary statement, all right? The clean laws was simply telling a tale about the human predicament. The number one human predicament, God is saying, with God being who he is and with me being who I am and with the world being what it is, is basically saying, if all that's true, how can I be right in the world? How can I be in a relationship with this God or even with the world around me or even inside my own head? I struggle with guilt in terms of my relationship to him. I struggle with neuroses in my own head. And sometimes I feel like the very world is against me. And the clean laws looked and said, yes, it's all true. Because there's this thing called sin that you have not adequately dealt with your life until you begin to honor its existence. It's an unpleasant message. I'm agreeing. But it sets us up for something beautiful. Which is my third point. Because the truth of the matter is, all of these clean laws are preaching a message. And it's preaching a message not only about the sin problem in the world, but it's preaching a message about the God who can make you clean. Look, I just want, to, want you to hear the echoes of this, of how they work out in our own daily life, even here at Old Miss. I, I want to suggest to you, the more I thought about this this summer, the more prominent it became that we are still wrestling with being clean and unclean, if you put it in these terms. These don't just belong to some kind of ancient group of people. We are still doing this. Look, go back to the leprosy discussion. Why is it that God would force these people to live out their worst fears in isolation from others? Can I suggest to you a reason why? Because God had said, I want this society that I'm building to be honest I want it to be honest because the fears of isolation are still just as real. We still walk around, I think in many ways, deeply repressed about it all. We just don't know how to tell somebody else how insecure we really are. Come on, think about the last time that you were broken up with. Or maybe a relationship that you wanted to work out didn't work out. Do you remember the fear on the inside? Or the anger? Or however it presented itself, the depression, whatever. Do you remember that it was telling a tale, wasn't it? That there was a threat that it's not just that this individual thinks that I'm not worth spending time with. No, it's something much larger. It's that I am worthless. That I'm capital W, w worthless. That I'm worthy of no one's love. See, that's the fear. And that's why breakups hurt so badly. Look, I've said this for, <laughs> for years now. The God of the Bible, though, is not going to treat you like your mommies did. Remember what it was like when you were little to go up to your mommy and be like, Mama, nobody at school likes me. How did your mama respond to that? Oh, of course not, sweetheart. Honey, everybody loves you. Your mom and daddy love you. You're wonderful. God is a little bit different. You come to God, you look and say, you know what? I'm afraid, honestly, that I'm isolated and alone and like cosmically unworthy of anyone's love. And the God of the universe looks at you and says, I know. I know you feel that way. And the truth of the matter is, you don't know the half of it. And for many of you looking, (laughs) and the bottom just dropped out of you just now. You're like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) 
God doesn't say that, does he? Oh, yes, he does. Because he looks and says, there is a certain posture that I must get you into before I'm able to apply my healing. Look, it sounds so cruel and heartless for me to even say that. And I know some of you are thinking that right now. You're looking going, oh, I don't want to think of God that way. I'm not coming back to that crazy, wacko, you know, Bible teacher. It's offensive to hear that. But here's the deal. Can I leave you with one thought before you depart and never come back? (laughs) What if it was true, though? What would you say to a doctor who walked to you and said, look, I don't want to hurt your feelings So I'm not going to tell you that what you've got is a very serious, long-term chronic medical condition. Truth is, it's just a common cold. You go on and do whatever you have to do. What would you say to that guy? You look and say, wait a minute. (laughs) If I really do have a chronic life-threatening disease, it's the kindest thing that you can do to actually be honest with me. Is it not? Look, y'all. It's not, if, if it's true, it's the most compassionate thing to do for God to actually tell us who we really are and where we really stand. Look, y'all, look, it's a setup, and it's a beautiful setup for a couple of stories that you get in the New Testament, and they're my favorites. I love this part. <laughs> First story comes from Mark chapter 5, verse 25. There is a woman who approaches Jesus who had been on her period for 12 years. <laughs> as the room gasped. That's funny. hope that comes out on the recording that everybody gasped with that. Look for a minute, ladies. Set aside what had to be a crippling and depressing health issue. Set that aside for a second. Do you realize what that meant if she was on a perpetual period? It wasn't just the fact that she had a medical condition. She was always unclean. Twelve years. Not allowed into the temple not allowed to go to worship with the rest of her family and friends. Look, it wasn't just about the disease. It wasn't just about the medical condition. It internalized itself, don't you know? But all of a sudden she reaches and she touches Jesus's, <laughs> the edge of his, of his, of his uh, clothes. And Jesus, all of a sudden, the Bible says, feels power going out of him, which is kind of weird and kind of cool at the same time. And look, she says, who touched me? And he, realized, and he heals this woman of her flow of blood. But you see now, it wasn't just a medical healing. Suddenly she was in. She understood that she was cosmically and spiritually in. The physical healing was just a parable of that, y'all. One of my other favorite stories is in Matthew chapter 8, where a person with leprosy, now you understand why there are so many stories about leprosy in the New Testament. Got to read Leviticus to figure that out. A leper comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's interesting. Notice he doesn't say, Lord, if you're willing, you can cure this leprosy. No, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You can make me acceptable if you're willing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want to be in. It's not just the physical healing. I want to be in. And here's the powerful point. In Matthew 8, it records that Jesus reached out. And you know what he did? He touched him. You see, Matthew thought that was key. Do you know what it was? You want to know why? You ain't supposed to touch somebody with leprosy. You see, what happens if you touch somebody else with a leprous skin disease? Guess what that makes you? It makes you unclean too. Oh, y'all, you got to hear this one. <laughs> if you haven't got anything this semester, you got to hear this one. You see, Jesus comes out and he looks and says, I'm going by touching you. 
I'm going to take that uncleanness on me. I'm not afraid to go to the places that we look at even in our modern day and say, that's disgusting to where I can hardly even read it in front of you. He said, I'm going to go to all those places that no one would dare, the most private places of your own soul that are only pictured at by your medical problems. And he touches him and he looks and basically makes a statement implicitly saying, I'm going to bear your uncleanness so that you can be ultimately clean. So whatever sort of small outsiderness that you feel will never be ultimately true because I'm coming to bring a healing. Look, y'all, Jesus came to take your uncleanness so that he could make you clean. You see, these priests could not heal the lesions that were on your skin, but this priest can. This is a high priest on the order of Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says. He comes not with condemnation, but with healing in his hands. He comes able to do what these Old Testament priests could never do and never affect. Look, one last thought before we finish. In verse 14, in chapter 14, it talks about the priest who takes some blood of the guilt offering and they put it on the lobe of the right ear to put on the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. Does that sound familiar to anybody from a couple weeks ago when we talked about the priesthood? In other words, God is looking and saying, I'm going to do the same thing with you that I did with the priest. Look, the beauty of it is, is, is God is not taking unclean people in to simply make them slaves in his house. He's saying, I'm going to make you a priest. I'm going to give you a place of honor. Just like someone who, who goes up to the front of the church and performs everything will be even a kingdom of priests. Just like we talked about a couple weeks ago. High priests treated like lepers if they have leprosy. <laughs> lepers treated like high priests. The outsiders, once cleansed by God, become a part of a royal priesthood. You know what their mission is then, therefore? To go out and touch other unclean people. That's the message and that's the mission of the clean laws. Is there's only one high priest that can make you clean. And whatever sense of wrongness you feel with God, yourself, or the world will only be found a cure in him. But guess what? Having known that, you know what your job is? Go find the other outsiders and go lay your hands on them. Go touch those people who desperately need it, who on the insides are wondering whether they are cosmically out. Christianity is a radically inclusive religion that calls people to itself for healing, both external and internal. You can consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you invite us in? Would you invite us in to consider our own uncleanness? Lord, in many ways, I'm almost even embarrassed to mention it in front of these people. The fact that you would even say things like that. Modern ears are so terrifically offended by the mere thought. But Lord, it's not cruel if it's true. But if it's true, then all of a sudden we're looking at you in a whole different way. You're not convenient to us. You are essential. And you do not merely tolerate us. You adore us. Because you are the God who comes and lays his hands on lepers.
Lord Jesus, I don't know if anyone in here is sick in that way. I don't know if anyone would have been considered unclean as they were in the Old Testament. But I, for one, am thankful that in seeing their example of physical uncleanness, I know exactly what it's like to feel the spiritual pain. And so in whatever way we know how, I ask that you would draw all of us, myself included, back to you, the only high priest with healing in your hands for an ultimate healing, to, be, to, to attain an ultimate in. And in so doing, send us out to go touch the others and to bring them in as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are that kind of God. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.